Hello, what is up my friends? Great to be back with you. I hope you're doing well. And today is the 44th live episode of Ask Abhijit. Today I am taking your live chat questions. All the questions I will be taking live only. So let me see who all is there. I can see Divesh, Gursimar Singh, Lone Wolf, the Alien, Rishabh, Bartesh, Harshit, Kapil, Sagapam, Dungar Singh, Divesh, Nachiket, Gurshruti Singh, Gaurav Raut, Ayush, Avinash, Karthik, Yash, Pritesh, Sagnik, Yuvraj, Abhay, Black Widow, Abhishek Kumar, Aryan Chakravarti, Pix Arts, Kiran, Satoru, DK Boss, Kira, Meghna, Saurabh and so many more people. Great to be with you all. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate your viewership. I appreciate all your support very much. Thank you so much. So what shall we discuss today? Shall we discuss history? Shall we discuss science, physics, culture, religion? What shall we discuss? I will take your questions. You guys decide what we discuss today. So let me see. Do you have questions? Start asking me right now. Let me see. Do you all have any questions? What questions do you have? Let us start by this question by Kira. Kira says, why, <laughs> why do you hate Nehru so much? I know he was selected, not elected first as PM. And he did some blunders, a little small, some small blunders in the 1962 war and in Kashmir, etc. But he also did some great, great things like the establishment of the IIM and IIT, etc. So why do you hate Mr. Nehru so much? Who says I hate Mr. Nehru? I am an enormous fan of our great Prime Minister Shri Jawaharlal Nehruji. I think he is the most towering Prime Minister we have ever had in this country. The greatest of all time. I mean, look at the contributions he has done to the country. His contributions in Kashmir, his contributions in the northeast of India, the Cabo Valley, the Cocoa Islands, uh, the Gwadar port, the Indus uh, Rivers Treaty, uh, Aksai Chin, I mean, uh, the the what's Article 370? I mean, you one runs out of of uh, ways to praise Shri Jawaharlal Nehru. That's how great he was. Who says I? <laughs> who says I hate him? I mean, yeah, he did some very small, tiny little blunders that we should just forget about. It's so what if he gave away half of, of Kashmir? So what if he gave away Tibet? So what if he gave away Aksai Chin? So what if he gave away the Gwadar port? So what if he refused to make India the permanent uh, member of the Security Council? So what if he refused American offers of nuclear weapons technology transfer? So what if he gave away the Cabo Valley to Burma? So what if he gave away Cocoa Islands? So what if he prevented India's economy from taking off by keeping it down the Nehruvian rate of growth? So what if he uh, imposed a colonial education system on India? Those are very small things, but we should remember he was a great man. Come on, guys. Come on. Look at the facts. The facts speak for themselves. That's all I have to say about Shri Nehruji. Let's see some other questions. Satoru says, Mr. Satoru Gojo. What are the similarities between sound waves and gravitational waves? Well, waves need a medium to travel in. If you see the surface of a pond or a lake or the ocean, you see the waves up and going up and down. And the medium is the body of water. That is the medium. Sound waves propagate through the air. If there is no air, if there is vacuum, there is no sound. 
So sound waves are disturbances in the medium that we are in, the atmosphere, the air. Similarly, the gravitational waves also need a medium to propagate in. And that medium is space-time. It is the fabric of space-time, which is the fabric of the universe. So, so sound waves propagate within air, within the Earth's atmosphere or the atmosphere of any planet. There is sound on Mars, on Venus, etc. So sound waves need an atmosphere, a gas to propagate in. And gravitational waves need the medium of the space-time continuum to propagate in. So that is the difference between sound waves and gravitational waves. Apart from that, similarities, these are both waves. These are all disturbances in the medium in which they propagate. So that is the similarity. And the equations, well, there are some similarities in the equations if you look at them. If you look at the wave equation uh, between these two things. So there are some similarities, the way the energy is carried and momentum and all that. You know, So there are similarities and there are differences as well. All right, let us see some more questions. I wish you all a very happy Ganesh Chaturthi. Ganpati Bappa Moria, everybody. Uh, I'm not sure if you can hear it, but uh, I am in Mumbai and there's this celebration, this festive atmosphere everywhere. I think the sound is coming in through my walls. I'm not in a studio, <laughs> soundproof studio, so maybe you'll hear the sound of the celebrations. Well, if you do hear it, I wish you all a very happy Ganesh Chaturthi and uh, a great celebration, a very happy celebration of this great Utsav. Okay, Gaurav Raut says, what happens if scientists are able to unify all the forces that exist in the universe? You know, the forces are actually all manifestations of the uh, one original primordial force that was a unified force that existed in the very, very, in the, in the immediate aftermath of the Big Bang. Uh, at time scales that are shorter than 10 raised to minus 44 seconds or minus 43 seconds. So this the force did exist at the time, and then the forces, the, the forces that we observe, that decoupled out of that. And scientists are still searching for ways to unify the forces mathematically to understand the origin of the universe better. So, if they are able to unify the forces of the universe, it will be done mathematically on paper. They will not somehow make a machine that will unify the forces. That's almost impossible to do because to do that, you will have to recreate the conditions of the Big Bang. Energies during the Big Bang epoch were so incredibly high that there is no way in the known universe to recreate such energies in a lab. So it can only be done mathematically. It won't, it is, there's no way even a very advanced civilization or species could actually recreate those conditions in a lab. I mean, as far as we know. So if it happens, then we will understand the universe better. That's what is going to happen. Maybe we'll be able to make some technological progress, etc., using that uh, newfound knowledge. So that's what would happen, what will happen if scientists are someday able to uh, find, discover the grand unified force. Dungar Singh Chauhan says that today was the anniversary of the 9-11 bombings. What have we as a nation learned? Well, what have, well, the, the primary learnings are for the United States of America. I think uh, they were taking their security uh, rather lightly. Now, after 9-11, they all, they tightened everything up. 
and so what did we learn we we learned that terrorism is a major uh, tool in certain nations arsenal it can be used to significantly uh, wound a nation and its public consciousness and we also learned that the americans well we know what happened afterwards you know the invasion of afghanistan and it, the way this event was used by the americans to expand their politi- their geopolitical footprint in the indian subcontinent especially pakistan and afghanistan at that time the united states was not favorably disposed towards india it, it regarded india as an enemy as a nation that needed to be taught a lesson so they made the best of this they invaded afghanistan they set up base there for 20 years so that's what happened i mean things are still in progress as we know in afghanistan they have withdrawn etc so what did we learn from this well terrorism exists it can be used to to bleed a country as we know better than anybody else we have experienced 2611 we have experienced numerous train bombings numerous city bombings etc so we we know these lessons much better than the united states we have experienced terrorism much more than the us has ever experienced it the us has had only one major uh terrorist attack major terrorist attack on us soil india has been bled repeatedly since the 19 late 1980s onwards it's only in the last 7 or 8 years that this has stopped because the current government the current prime minister has made it very clear if there is any terrorist strike on india there's going to be hell to pay for pakistan and we know that terrorism comes only from pakistan more or less so i think this the current government has demonstrated that india can deal with terrorism with a very uh with a very hard hand and that is a very good development that we have seen in the past 7 8 years that's a very good thing okay kapil says a geopolitics question regarding the emergency in sri lanka can india offer to help them if they agree to join india as a new state or autonomous area should india pursue this Okay so what you're referring to is the uh recently in the last week or so the news has come out that Sri Lanka has declared an economic uh emergency they are close to defaulting on the big loans they have taken from especially China I would say China has trapped them in their customary debt debt trap and yeah the Sri Lankans are maybe on the verge of defaulting on certain loan repayments I I'm not sure if it's to china or to the international monetary fund or somebody else but they are in a precarious situation right now so the time is ripe for a country like china to take over should like even even further by you know offering more loans in exchange for collateral such as land and property and you know that sort of thing now can india offer to help if they agree to join india as a new state the sri lankans will weigh, want to weigh the possibilities who's running sri lanka right now it's the rajapaksa family that is running running sri lanka i think it is mr gotabaya rajapaksa who is at the head and his brother mr mahinda rajapaksa is uh, one of the major ministers but i think mr mahinda rajapaksa is the real center of power as far as i can see now when it is a strong man or a certain family that is running a country it is essentially run for themselves it's it, they will take um 
they will take decisions based on their personal interest rather on their national interest they are known to be rather, rather corrupt i mean lots of reports have come in the media it's not me speaking it's not my opinion there's been a lot written in the media about the corruption that has been there in sri lanka during the rajapaksa's times and even later and they are back again in, in the saddle so i think it is when you have a strong man running a country or a family running a country it's very easy to offer them inducements bribes etc which may not be in the larger interest of the country but it will be beneficial for the family or the individual and that's what the chinese have been doing and the americans also have been doing in pakistan in afghanistan in africa and many other places that's how geopolitics is played now will the rajapaksas be willing to give up sovereignty of their country to india in exchange for help i don't think so i think they'll be much more amenable to getting further bribes from the chinese in exchange for giving up sovereignty to china because that's how the game is played the chinese will ensure that the rajapaksas stay in power etc for a long period of time as long as they can keep ruling the country and enriching themselves it works for them india probably will not offer such a deal to them so even if such an offer were on the table i don't think it's going to work out right now at least india needs to become way more powerful it has to become the only hegemonic power in the indian ocean for such a scenario to be viable and for a country like sri lanka to consider it seriously because loss of sovereignty explicitly to india would be something that even the sri lankan public may not like but de facto loss loss of sovereignty to china is what's already going on it's not visible sri lanka doesn't officially come under china and that's why it is more palatable so in order to someday uh create a larger confederation of nations or a civilizational state india will need to become much more powerful economically militarily and have way more influence geopolitically than it currently has that's what needs to happen right let's see some more questions uh first okay i can see some new members thank you so much for joining i really appreciate it and i would like to thank all the current members also for having become members thank you so much and let me also thank all of you all of you those of you who have been contributing in various ways to the channel i really appreciate it thank you so much all right let's see some more questions Hitesh says why is the world not sanctioning pakistan despite knowing that they have played a major role in the victory of the taliban and are also responsible for terrorism in the subcontinent good question why is the world not sanctioning pakistan this hashtag has been trending on twitter for the past couple of weeks sanction pakistan well the world doesn't <laughs> the world is not run on the basis of hashtags and social media trends and sentiments the world is all about real politics and uh, ge geopolitics you know various large hegemonic powers have certain interests and those are the interests they pursue now the world as we know has been creating lots of terrorist outfits not the world but the major powers of the world if you look at the history of the past 100 years they have created a number of terrorist outfits used them for some time then discarded them then again reused them when it was useful for them and so on al qaeda had a use the afghan mujahideen were a terrorist outfit one could say, one could argue that they were a terrorist outfit but they were useful to the us so they were used the taliban has not 
See, the Pakistanis have not re- played a role in the victory of the Taliban. The Americans have handed over the country of Afghanistan to the Taliban. They have ensured the Taliban get the best possible chance to rule the country for the next 10-20 years. So it's not Pakistan that has done that. It's the Americans who have done that. Now the question again is, why is the world not sanctioning Pakistan? Well, if you look at Al-Qaeda, the Americans used Al-Qaeda. They supported Al-Qaeda in Syria recently. Right? The US supported the Taliban in Afghanistan over at various points in time. The Americans have turned a blind eye in the 1980s, 90s, and even the early 2000s. They have turned a blind eye to Pakistan's support of terrorism in Kashmir and other parts of India. The Americans knew what was happening. When India complained, they said it's a law and order problem. It's not terrorism. Right? So the Americans and the world larger large world powers, major powers have always known that terrorism exists and terrorism is a tool they use from time to time to pursue and further their national interest globally. And out of all these terrorist outfits that the Western world has created in the past many decades, the biggest terrorist outfit is the Pakistan army. And that was the stick they used to beat India with time and time again, right? So if they have created this stick to beat India with, they will not want to see the stick being destroyed as long as it is useful in some way or the other. Even today, they will want to keep pressurizing India in certain ways and they will use Pakistan for that. Pakistan still is potentially useful to these people. And therefore, Pakistan is a tool that they will want to sustain, at least for the time being. The Americans may not have much use for the Pakistanis anymore, I would say. But now the Chinese have a use for the Pakistanis. Because the Chinese want to keep India off balance. And they want to have this pain point, pressure pressure point on India at the western border. And the Chinese are therefore supporting the Pakistanis. And these are the reasons why the major powers of the world keep using these bad guys, the terrorists the dictators, and so on in the world. The world needs bad people. These major powers need bad guys from, from in various places in order to run the world. Because there are certain things you can't do officially in a democratic, liberal society, but you can give covert support to certain terrorists to do certain certain dirty jobs for you, and so on. So these are the this is the way in which geopolitics is played. Much of it is below the table. And that is why the world is not sanctioning Pakistan, even though it is well known that they are a terrorist nation. That is the answer, my friends. Okay, what else do we have? Mahesh Patil says, tell us about the Hakshamanish dynasty, its contributions, and good books to read about them are Okay, first of all, I don't see the. Okay, first of all, what is the Hakshamanish dynasty? The Hakshamanish dynasty is the Achaemenid dynasty. It's called the Achaemenid dynasty in the West. It is the dynasty, the foundational dynasty of Persia, so to say. It is the first major dynasty that uh, emerged in Persia about 3000 or so years ago. Uh, their first king, the founder king of this dynasty, was Hakshamanish. And that's why it's called the Hakshamanish dynasty or the Achaemenid dynasty. They, the Greeks called him Achaemenis because they like to distort names, right? So 
the Achaemenid dynasty of Persia. So it was a major dynasty. They had great kings like Cyrus the Great, which is who is Kurush the Great, Darayavaus the Great, Darayas the Great, uh, Uvakshatra was there. Then you had uh, Arthakshatra or Artha Xerxes, Xerxes. You had Kshayarsha or Xerxes in Greek and so on. So they had many great kings. They built a great empire. They even went to war with the Romans and the Greeks, uh, mostly the Greeks. But at some point in time, they even fought the Romans. So they had a large sphere of influence west of India towards uh, so-called Greater Iran, which is, uh, if you see, the, let's see, let's take a look at the map. The map is always useful. So here is Iran or Persia. So they, their empire was on the borders of India. At some points in time, it incorporated parts of Afghanistan, parts of present-day Pakistan, and much of present-day Iran, and even parts of Armenia, Georgia. At, at one point in time, it had taken over the entirety of Anatolia, uh, in the uh, middle of the 4th or 5th century BCE, and so on. So it was a very significant dynasty. They had many great achievements. Uh, they adopted Zoroastrianism, so me, which means that they gave up, uh, they transitioned from Hinduism to Zoroastrianism. Zarathustra was born, I think, in Bahlik, in Balk, if I am not mistaken. It was in Afghanistan that he was born, or maybe in Herat, either Balk or Herat. So he was born in India, in Gandhar, because 3,000 years ago, Afghanistan was very much part of India. It was Gandhar. So Zarathustra was an Indian. He was born there. Then he managed to influence the people of Persia, the Parshva people, and they adopted his uh, his his uh, belief system, which is now known as Zoroastrianism. So that is what happened. So he was born a Hindu. The Persians were Hindus, and then they transitioned to Zoroastrianism. So that is something about the Hakshamanish or Achaemenid dynasty. It is during their time that this religion, Zoroastrianism, came to the fore and it was it spread throughout the Persian world. Uh, any good books to read about them? I, I mean, I have read so many books. I can't think of one good book or one single book in which you can get to, get to read all about them. I would say books by Will Durant, especially about Asia, could be useful. I, I, I seriously don't have a single book, one book or two books or three books that I can give off the top of my head that you can use to learn about this. I mean, I have read so many books, so I can't think of any one book. Maybe you can uh, start with, if it is available, uh, one of the books. So Will Durant has this uh, series of books called The Story of Civilization, I think. And uh, so that has a great deal of information about ancient Persia as well. One of the books in that, I think it is Our Asian Heritage or something like that. You can check it out. So that is one of the books I could recommend. It's an, it's an old book, maybe almost 100 years old, but it is still very useful. It's got a lot of great information. So maybe that you could start with that, but I, I'm sorry, I cannot, I can't recall any one book. I've read so many, so I'm not very good at book recommendations. If I recommend books, I'll have to recommend 20 or 30 books, <laughs> which I can't recall right now. So Apologies for that. Okay. Dhruv Mishra says, please elaborate on the Navy's importance and what India can do to power it up and become a leader. Let's look at the map. If we see India today, this here is India. This is the Indian Ocean region. If you see India, you will see that it is almost cut off from Asia. On the west and in the north, you have the border with Pakistan. So we can't use that border to go anywhere because it's a highly militarized border. 
And to the north, you have Pakistan-occupied Kashmir, which is again highly militarized. To the north and the east, you have the border of Tibet, which is occupied by China. So that again is a very militarized border, very tense border. You know what's been happening there. So there is no way to access Asia or other parts of the world through there. If you look at the northeast of India, there is very little infrastructure. There are very few roads. Uh, the Burma, the, the Burma border is very thickly forested. There is only one road, I think, into Burma through India, and that is through the town of More in Manipur. Again, the roads are very bad. We were the, there's been talk of building a four-lane or express highway that will connect uh, More to Southeast Asia and even a railway line. I don't know what's happening. It's been they've been talking about it for the past 20 years. I don't know how much it has progressed. So India essentially, now you have Bangladesh again, which is eastern uh, Bengal, which is again, we don't have much land access there, right? So if you look at India, it is almost cut off from the rest of the world through land. We have no railways that take us to Europe or to, to the east. We have no roads that help us access the rest of the world. The only way Indians travel outside of India is by air. So, and yet we have this enormous coastline. We have this beautifully God, this beautiful God-given position in the center of the Eurasia, which straddles the entire Indian Ocean. So why doesn't India become a maritime superpower? It, we have everything we need to become a maritime superpower that would expand our sphere of influence so greatly. It would allow us to counterbalance China. If China comes, does you know, plays some mischief on the northern border, we can cut off China's access to the rest of the world through the Indian Ocean, through the Malacca Strait, for instance, right? So the Malacca Strait through this strait over here, over here, I think it's called the Strait of Sunda. I think, if I'm not mistaken, or something else. And of course, we have the Strait of Hormuz here, and and this here, Bab Al Mandeb. So we have access to all of these choke points that can make China behave. But you need a powerful Navy for that. If you look at the present day strength of the Navy, it's not much. I know I have got lots of comments by people saying, no, we have a big Navy. I mean, come on. The strength of the Navy is not how many ships you have, even though we don't have so many ships. The strength of the Navy is how many missiles you can field at sea on a given day. Right? And if you look at the actual number of missiles we can field on any given day, it is not much. If you look at the number of dangerous, deadly ships like destroyers we have, it's just a handful. If you look at the number of submarines, we have 15 or 16 working submarines. The Chinese have many more times than that. Submarines. Even the Japanese have more submarines than India. Even the North Koreans have 80 or 90 submarines at work. So India has done a very bad job of developing its marine strength, its maritime naval strength. What India needs to do is invest in agile platforms that can deploy missiles, missile boats, lighter ships, etc. Right now, the Navy is more or less just a glorified Coast Guard. That's all it is. We have one aircraft carrier that we have to hide in during wartime. Because it is an enormous thing and it's a very big target. It's an enticing target. I think in the in the 71 war, we had to hide the aircraft carrier in the eastern sea, in the Bay of Bengal, near Vishakapatnam. 
So aircraft carriers are just nice white elephants. They don't really serve much use in war. It's a very big target. If the enemy is able to destroy your aircraft carrier, half your naval strength is gone right there. Na- the, the entire basis of a strong navy is distributed lethality. But India is investing in concentrating its lethality in one or two large ships like aircraft carriers. It, in my opinion, India doesn't even need an aircraft carrier. India needs to invest in smaller, lighter, agile ships that can carry lots of missiles. And it it needs to populate the entire Indian Ocean region with lots and lots of ships. Quantity has a quality of its own. Right? If you have one, let's say you have 10 destroyers that can each carry 16 Brahmos missiles. So you have 160 Brahmos missiles that you can deploy and not every destroyer can be deployed at sea on a given day. Usually it's one third or one half that you can display, deploy. But instead of that, if you had, let's say, 100 missile boats that can each carry three Brahmos missiles, then imagine how much you can spread out your lethality across the Indian Ocean. So these are some of the things that India needs to look into. India has the, has done very badly in, in creating a strong navy. Our naval officers are brilliant. They are very well trained. They are very professional. They are second to none. But unfortunately, they don't have, have the kind of resources at their disposal. We would like to see lots of new ships, dangerous, deadly, powerful ships. And that would make India a significant geopolitical player in, in about a decade, if India were to invest in that. And India needs to build a lot more submarines. So that's why the Navy is important. It, it gives you the kind of power across a very large percentage of the globe if you invest in building a strong Navy. That's why it's important. All right, let's see some more questions. Can we nuke Pakistan? We can nuke Pakistan, but it is not desirable. You shouldn't. Nuclear weapons are, they are not, they are not created to be used in warfare. It is a deterrent. It is something that tells the enemy that you cannot cross a certain line, a certain red line. If you do cross that red line, you're done. So it's a deterrent. It's not supposed to be used ever. We don't want to nuke Pakistan. We don't want the Pakistanis to die. They are our brothers and sisters. No matter what they believe, they are still our people. I do not wish the people of Pakistan ill. I want them to be happy. I want them to prosper. But I want Pakistan to be fragmented and broken up. Because that is going to eliminate the role of the Pakistan army, which is oppressing the people of Pakistan and creating this sense of conflict between India and them. I would like to see a an independent Sindh, an independent Balochistan, an independent Punjab. I would like to see POK come back to India, Gilgit Baltistan come back to India. And I would like to see the Pashtun areas go back to Afghanistan. That is what needs to happen. The world will be at peace if we can make this happen. It We don't need to nuke Pakistan in order for this to happen. We want Pakistan, the people of Pakistan to have a good life, but in independent nations like Sindh and Balochistan and Punjab. So nuking them is not the solution. It's like if the only tool you have is a hammer, then every problem you see is a nail. That's not how it works. We have a big diverse toolkit of tools and we need to use all the tools in our arsenal. And if some tools are not strong enough, we need to strengthen them. 
and that's what needs to happen so yeah we can nuke pa- pakistan if we want to we can nuke china also if we want to but is it desirable we're going to have some blowback too that's not the way to do things you know we need to have a more nuanced approach towards geopolitics raghav says what is the outcome of being swallowed by a black hole well if you are swallowed by a black hole what's in- interesting is what happens before you are swallowed by a black hole if the black hole is large enough if it's a supermassive black hole then you won't even realize when you cross the event horizon the event horizon is just a it's not a real thing it's it's just the point of no return beyond which even light cannot come back beyond which even light cannot turn back and escape the black hole so it's a theoretical boundary it's a physical region but there is no actual surface you know it's just it's just a distance from the center now before you are swallowed by a black hole if it is a reasonably small black hole not a supermassive one then you will undergo something called spaghettification it is because of tidal forces when you let's say you have a pencil or a pen now this pen is it is being affected by the earth's gravity if i leave it it will drop down it will drop towards the center of the earth now the force of gravity at the at the bottom of the pen is slightly greater than the force that the top of the pen is feeling because the top of the pen is slightly more distant from the center of the earth than the bottom of the pen but the difference in the gravitational field strength is very 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 minimal it can't really be measured but in the case of a black hole this distance from here to here is very significant the force that is felt over here if i if this pen is near a black hole is very much stronger than the force the head will feel and therefore this pen will get stretched out and elongated now if a human being were to fall into it the four and let's see the let's say the person is falling in feet first then the force your feet feel the gravitational force your feet will feel will be maybe 10 or 100 times greater than the force your head will feel and therefore your body will be stretched out and spaghettified it's called spaghettification and therefore much before you reach the event horizon of a black hole you're going to be stretched out into long strands of spaghetti which is not a good thing to imagine because it's going to be the end of you so that is the outcome of somebody who is in the process of falling into a black hole they will get stretched out and spaghettified into long long strands of well human substance but if you are able to go inside a black hole if it's a supermassive one intact then at some point in time you will encounter something really strange in there we don't really know what it is uh, according to the best physics that we have the equations of the general theory of rel- relativity there is something called a singularity at the heart of a black hole but that is most likely just a mathematical artifact that tells us that there is something missing in our theory so there is something inside a black hole we don't quite know what it is that's why it's black because we can only speculate what's beyond the event horizon so that's what i can say you may find some strange what may be on the other side maybe there's a white hole on the other side of a black hole maybe it's a portal to another universe maybe there's a world hole wormhole inside that will take you to another part of the universe maybe but that's all there is all speculation because we don't quite know so what we can say for sure is that you will get spaghettified while going inside but once you cross the event horizon if you stay conscious if you're still alive we don't know what happens because our 
best theories still cannot explain what's inside. All right, what else do we have? Some more questions. Interesting. Please tell us about ancient Indian diet and the cuisine. Well, unfortunately, we don't have ancient cookbooks that go back 2,000, 3,000 years, unfortunately. But uh, some people have done some analysis of some pottery, etc. found in the uh, Saraswati Sindhu region, the Sapta Sindhu region of uh, ancient India. So they found Harappan era pottery and they did some chemical analysis and they were able to reconstruct one of the ancient dishes that somebody had made. It was, I think, uh, eggplant brinjal with uh, with ginger and turmeric in in some kind of, some sort of oil. So that's the kind of residue they were able to find in that uh, in that vessel. And I remember seeing some other news report or some article, I think, in Nature, I think, in which they found seven ancient fossilized laddus you know multi-grain laddus in in the same uh, geography of india which is the sapta sindhu region so it's clear that indians were eating laddus multi-grain laddus maybe five six thousand years before today so there is clearly again this is another data point that points to the continuity of culture in the indian subcontinent going back several thousand years to the very beginnings of the so-called harappan era so that's what we know that Indians did eat a very similar diet, similar to what they we eat even today. Even today, laddus are very popular, right? The, the, right now we have this Ganesh festival going. What is uh, Lord Ganesh's favorite food? It's the laddu. So, so yeah, it's interesting that this uh, cultural continuity is seen that goes back many thousand years. But it's interesting. I wish some historians and some researchers would actually do more detailed research into deciphering the exact kind of diet that we had in ancient times. I am sure that if you look at, if you take some ancient remains from the Harappan Saptasindhu region, many remains are available, and you do spectroscopic analysis of the bones, the teeth, then you can, I'm sure you can determine what sort of minerals and other other. Uh, uh, such elements were present in the diet. So I wish that would be done, but so far our historians have done nothing. I think it's up to the scientists to decipher what our history really was like. Okay. Let us see some more questions. SC says, why does atheism exist? Why were different religions formed? Are there many gods in the universe? Where is God in the universe or the multiverse? Uh, okay, let me answer the first question first. Uh, why does atheism exist? Because people are skeptical by nature. God isn't something physical, right? Have you ever seen God? I have never seen God. I have never seen a physical manifestation of God or gods. It is all about belief, right? Religion is about belief. Whether you believe in a god or not, or multiple gods, or whatever manifestation of the divine essence, or whatever you want to call it, that is something that comes from within you, or it comes from within your culture. But there's always people in any culture who are skeptical, and 
even in various indian philosophies one of the most basic and most uh, simplest indian philosophies is charvaka which is pure materialism whatever you see is what exists there is nothing else so that is that is atheism it is uh, a highly skeptical theory a skeptical philosophy but there's a logic to it so philosophy is about logic it's about a logical school of thought and there are other uh, atheistic or agnostic schools of thought like bodh dharma bodh philosophy jaina philosophy and, and many more there are various more i have go you can see my 5 uh, minute intro to philosophy indian philosophy on this channel look it up i've given some a brief amount of detail about that so atheism exists i mean any in any culture in any religious uh, structure you're going to have people who don't believe so that's why atheism exists and in in uh, what is now called hinduism atheism was very much a part of hinduism if there are multiple atheistic schools of thought so that is very much part of it i think even mimamsa believes that the universe is run by the law of karma but there is no divine essence there is no creator god so that's what it is you know and the, the hinduism or the dharm, dharmic uh the dharmic uh, schools of thought or the dharmic culture or civilization is what uh it respects all kinds of viewpoints and perspectives and you will find that nowhere else in the world especially not in any abrahamic school of thought in any abrahamic religion so why were different religions formed well because see in in india we don't have religions we have philosophical schools of thought bodh school of thought the jaina school of thought charvaka mimamsa bodh sankhya vedanta etc you know charvaka so these are different schools of thought these are not different religions now the westerners have tried to break it up into hinduism buddhism jainism now they're trying to create more divide divisions like brahmanism and dalitism and god knows what else so they are trying to divide indian culture in the, in the indian society in this manner to break it apart but outside of india especially in west asia etc well these different prophets emerged the earliest prophet that we know of was zarathustra or zoroaster who said that he received a vision from from ahura mazda the god that he believed in and this became a, the first revealed religion and then you had these various various uh, semitic or abrahamic religions three of them which you know of so these are all these all emerge in the in the socio political context of that geographical region which was the desert areas of the middle east so that's why these religions are highly militarized highly structured and there is no 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 space for questioning and and all that so the entire attitude is very different there so the, these are the socio political and socio cultural forces that create these belief systems or religions it all depends on the on the kind of climate and geography and, and and much more that you have where this emerges now are there many gods in the universe where is god listen i don't know our scriptures the dharmic scriptures say a lot of things about god or gods in the rig veda itself there is the nasadiya sukta that says that there is essentially agnosticism it says that we don't quite know who made the universe 
it likens in the rigveda the the creation of the universe is likened to the uh, to the way a blacksmith forges an instrument in his fire but it's it it's quite agnostic that we don't know what came before the universe and if somebody made the universe who made him that's the kind of question that is asked in the rigveda so that is quite agnostic but later on you have very clear uh, a very clear polytheistic uh, pantheon which is the original polytheistic pantheon of the entire indo-european world in which indra was the m- most powerful god who later became Z- so indra took certain aspects of dios pita and dios pita became zeus pater in greece zeus pater became jupiter in rome and that eventually became thor in the nordic world so we have this ancient pantheon which is the original pantheon that gave rise to the greek the roman and the norse pantheon and the, even the slavic pantheon but are these real gods or do i mean maybe i don't know personally i have never seen any of them but, it, but my senses are very limited i only have five senses we don't know what's out there in the universe 95% of the universe is dark to us we don't know what's out there and our senses are very 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 uh, primitive they are very limited so we don't know what's out there maybe there are gods maybe there are lots of gods maybe there's just one god maybe there's no god who knows i don't know i am nobody to say i am just a student i am learning i am trying to figure out what the world is like so i don't have the answers to that how many gods are there and whether there is a god in the universe or multiverse we don't know i don't know maybe some people have it figured out i don't so that's all like all i can say about that okay ravi says talk about the japanese brutality in china yeah that's a very very uh, curious thing isn't it so i had spoken about in the past of the fact that asian empires asian kings and asian emperors and asian empires never indulged in colonialism i gave the examples of the cholas the cholas conquered the whole of southeast asia but they did not ever extract any wealth out of there they did not commit any genocide or any massacres they actually enriched the cultures they actually the culture and the people of the region they actually settled down there the people of indonesia all have indian genetics the people of southeast asia whether it's cambodia whether it is uh, thailand whether it is uh, uh, vietnam etc laos myanmar they all have indian indian blood some percentage of of indian uh, dna and they all are immersed in indian culture so india gave more than it ever took it it took nothing and even the chinese did not indulge in colonialism they did conquer various parts of asia from time to time but they did not extract wealth out of there and neither did the great mongols the great chinggis khan otherwise mongolia would be a very rich country today and yet there is a period in asian history in which japan indulged in colonialism which is in the early part of the 20th century so the context to that is the meiji reformation in which the meiji emperor of japan in the late 18th century tried to reconfigure japan as a in the western way so he tried to imitate the west he tried to create an industrialized society he tried to stamp out buddhism which shows very much that he was going against dharma he tried to stamp out buddhism he failed but then the entire approach of the japan japan's imperial machinery including the imperial army 
was very much anti-dharmic or adharmic. And that's why, that is what impelled them into the these actions that they that they are known to have taken in China and other places. So yes, they were very brutal. They were very brutal. You know what they did in Nanjing? I mean, the kind of behavior they demonstrated in the city of Nanjing in China is, is abominable. It is unforgivable. We know what they did in, the, in Korea, what they did to the women of Korea. It is barbaric, brutal behavior. It is a great dark spot on the otherwise good history of Japan. So it happened because they turned away from their dharmic culture, the culture they had been following for for fifteen hundred years, and they went down. They descended into the depths of animalistic behavior. So that's what happened in Japan. The brutality is like unspeakable. What they did in China, I mean, and and the, the brutality that they did even against various prisoners of war during the Second World War, against Americans, against Australians, against Indians as well, is is horrible. What they did, you know. And even the, what they did in the, in the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, the way they treated the prisoners there and all that, it's absolutely brutal. So, whatever. So I, I'm not sure if it's it's a karmic thing that they were nuked in World War Two, but it is a good thing that they were defeated in the Second World War. They were on the doorstep of India. They wanted to conquer India and turn turn India into a colony. They wanted to snatch India from the British and turn India into their colony. If they had succeeded, God knows what they would, have, they would have done in India as well. So I think it's a good thing they lost. Unfortunately, the Indian National Army, Subhash Chandra Bose's INA also lost as in the process. But that's just how it went. So yes, the, the this is a very, very depressing and, and distressing chapter of history. The Japanese behavior in the first half of the 20th century. Terrible, abominable, unforgivable. Okay, some more questions. Some more questions. Vaibhav says, who was or is your favorite US president or any other world leader from the past 100 years? And why? Well, I don't have any favorite US president. I think the most significant one was Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I don't have any favorites as such, but I would say the one of the most significant ones is Abraham Lincoln, because the country was on was being on the verge of being partitioned between the north and the south, and he went to war to stop the partition of the country, and he was able to keep it together. So that's a very significant event. And then you had people like uh, Roosevelt, Eisenhower, Kennedy to some extent, Nixon, many people who did a great deal of uh, who contributed a great deal of. Uh, work to the country and who shaped the course of the world because the US became a, a major superpower. Uh, apart from that, who is my other world leaders? Well, there are many significant world leaders, whether you like him or not. Winston Churchill was one of the significant people. He was a monster. He, well, he caused genocide in India. More than five, I would say nearly 10 million Bengalis died directly as a consequence of his actions. So he was a great monster. Hitler was a great monster. Stalin was a great monster. So was Mr. Mao Zedong. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew is a very interesting and important figure. 
he brought this small city state of singapore out of abject poverty and destitution and he transformed it within 20 years into a first world nation so there's a great deal to learn from him another great leader is mustafa kemal ataturk who took this fragmented country this ruined country turkey which was which had been divided up in the aftermath of the first world war after the collapse of the ottoman empire so he took this broken country and he forged a unified nation out of it mustafa kemal ataturk great man he tried his best to secularize turkey but today as you can see it has gone back full circle and turkey has become again it's reverting to its ottoman ottoman mindset and culture but he was a great man for sure mustafa kemal ataturk so there are many great leaders i i'm sure i've missed many i'm not able to think of all of them at the same time but there are many great leaders that that were there in the 20th century in the past 100 years i would say ataturk was one of the greats definitely one of the greats and jinnah muhammad ali jinnah tried to emulate ataturk but he was a very very poor version of ataturk ataturk was a colossus jinnah was a nobody it is the british who contributed the greatest to the success of jinnah so it is not really jinnah who caused the partition of india it is the british and mr gandhi more than mr jinnah who partitioned india okay let's see some more questions mm, let's see let's see let's see Jeevan Rosario says did the people of the middle ages have any perception of live audio or visual recordings like radio or tv no as far as we know there was no such thing we have found no evidence of any such uh, technology harsh says what was the reason for giant versions of current animal species in the earlier eras of the earth on the earth like elephants rhinos etc so yeah in the past you had these mammoths woolly mammoths that populated the colder regions of eurasia and i think even north america if i am if i am not quite mistaken then you had what's known as megafauna giant uh, versions of various animals giant uh, sloths called megatherium and all who were wiped out into extinct who were forced into extinction by our ancient ancestors from many 10000 years ago and so on so and then you had these great sharks called called uh, the meg megalodon i think <laughs> and you had giant crocodiles and all so and you also had the titanoboa these enormous pythons that were like 10 times greater than 10 times larger than any python alive today and you had enormous apes also i think in the himalayas etc so yes there were phases in our planet's history where you had this megafauna enormous animal species even today you have some megafauna like the blue whale which is the largest animal known to have ever existed on the planet so this is all because of evolution there are certain times when certain animals grow really large because it is beneficial for them to grow large for example when the maybe the climatic conditions are such that it is beneficial for animals to grow large in that case they grow larger and larger but when some uh, intelligent predator emerges like like homo sapiens or homo habilis or whatever then these large animals become easy pickings for them especially if they learn how to hunt in groups and that's why these large animals died out 
because of our actions or the actions of our, our ancestors and so on. So these are evolutionary cycles. Evolution is often cyclic, just like history is cyclic. But the cycles of evolution happen over millions of years, maybe tens of millions of years, just the way that the cycles of history happen over decades or centuries. So it's in a way similar to the cycles of history. So it's all about the forces of evolution, the, the evolutionary forces that uh, you have this thing called the Milkanovich cycle in which the climate of the earth goes from hot to cold over many thousands of years and so on. So, so climate is cyclic. You have periods of, of hot climate, then you have periods of ice ages and that's what causes the changes in the body structures and sizes of animals and that's what we witness in the fossil record. So it is all because of the forces of evolution, survival of, of the fittest. The climate is changing, animals have to adapt. And to adapt, they have to either change their size or the behavior or come up with new mutations or new uh, evolutionary changes. So that's what causes that. Okay, let's see some more question. You are most welcome, Harsh. Most welcome. Jorge says, um, could you talk about the import importance of Kautilya and the Arthashastra for India, political theory and international relations? You know, it is very important. These lessons that we find in the Arthashastra, especially when it comes to uh, geopolitics, Kutniti, and all that. These are timeless lessons. These are applicable even today. There are seminars in, in, in military schools and colleges and universities in the West about the principles of the Arthashastra, the principles of uh, Vishnugupta Chanakya. But in India, I don't think there is any military university or college in India in which these precepts are taught. And even when it comes to politicians and, and people in diplomacy, etc., I don't think it's required reading for them. I know the Arthashastra is a large book. It deals with all kinds of topics which are all related to statecraft with the with how to run a kingdom. But when it comes to geopolitics and international relations, there are certain sections that are would be quite quite, quite useful for people who are on the front lines in these fields. So it's very important. And I, I would say that, you know, in the past 70 years, countries like Pakistan and China have been, <laughs> they have been doing better at China Kiniti than India. They have been adhering to the principles and the precepts of China Kiniti far better than India, which is a crying shame. So I think it is very, very important that we take the teachings of the great Vishnugupta Chanakya very seriously. These are timeless teachings. If the world still exists, if, human, if humanity still exists 2,000 years in the future, these precepts will, will be just as useful 2,000 years from today. So these are timeless concepts and these have to be taken very seriously. If India starts implementing Chanakya Niti in its true sense, across the sphere in geopolitics and international relations, India will be a very different kind of country. So it is very important. That's a, this is a very good question.
This is another interesting question by Naman. Can you comment on the establishment of Portuguese power in India and why any other European power was not able to discover India in the 15th century? So in the 1490s, you had this uh, age of discovery. The Europeans were going hither and thither, looking for ways to rediscover India. Uh, Constantinople had fallen to the Turks. The Byzantine Empire was dead and the land route to India had been cut off. And the Europeans had been trading with India for thousands of years. A significant portion of the Roman Empire's trade was with India. They would import spices and other goods and various other things from India and they would give back gold in return. And that's how India became enormously wealthy by trading with all these different countries. So the Europeans loved Indian products, spices and other things. And when the Turks cut off the land route to India, it was a crisis point for them. And so this triggered off the age of discovery. So Christopher Columbus was looking for India. His objective was to discover and colonize India. But he blundered off in the wrong direction. He found the Americas and he came back and reported that he had discovered India to Isabella and Ferdinand of Spain, the king and queen of the queen and king of Spain. And similarly, the Portuguese were also looking for India. Now, Christopher Columbus went westwards across the Atlantic Ocean. He thought that maybe he will discover India from there. And what Vasco da Gama, the Portuguese, thought that he would go go around Africa and try to find a way to reach India through that. And he happened to succeed. He was able to go around the Cape of Good Hope. He reached, I think, Zanzibar or somewhere where there was a significant Indian presence for centuries or even millennia. Because we, we know that there has been Indian presence and influence in Africa for at least 4,000 years. So he found Indians there. I think the person he found was either a Gujarati or from Kerala. And he took this merchant with him on his ship. And this, this merchant was able to show Vasco da Gama the, the way to reach India. And that's how he reached Calicut. So that's how he was able to discover India. So he went in the right, right direction. He got lucky. And that's how he was able to discover India. So the Portuguese then started trading with India. They started creating these colonies in India. Their objective was to colonize and destroy India and plunder all its wealth, which has been the which was the objective of every single European power. So Columbus also wanted to colonize India. And later on, the British, because of their technological prowess, were able to overpower all the other European powers and take India for their own. So that's what happened in the about 500 years from before today. That's what happened. Joydeep says, how did the dinosaurs disappear? Well, Joydeep, <laughs> who tells you that the dinosaurs disappeared? I see them every day. They are everywhere. Dinosaurs are still alive. They are everywhere. The non-avian dinosaurs died out, but the, the avian dinosaurs survived. They had feathers. They are called birds today. Birds are the descendants of the dinosaurs who survived the cataclysm that occurred 66 million years ago. So what happened to the other dinosaurs? So there was this enormous cometary impact. We believe it's, it was a comet, the Chicxulub comet, which impacted the earth about 66 billion years ago. 
the impact was in the Yucatan Peninsula. Let me show you the region. Let me show you the map. So if we go west, to, let's go west. We could even have gone eastwards, but it's fine. So this is Mexico here. As you can see, this is Mexico. And here you have this peninsula. It's called the Yucatan Peninsula. This state is called Yucatan. And this peninsula is called the Yucatan Peninsula. And if you go here, if you go further, it's somewhere here that you will find the village of Chicxulub. Let me see where it is. Where it is? Where is it? Where is it? Let me search for it. C-H-I-C-X-U-L-U-B. Chicxulub. Yucatan. Here it is. So this little village in Mexico is called Chicxulub. It is at the epicenter of an ancient impact event that happened 66 million years ago. It was here. And the crater is now buried under the ocean, under the ocean and also under land. But it is faint. It may be faintly visible here. It's an enormous crater, about 130 or 180 kilometers in diameter. So this is where the impact happened 66 billion years ago. And it is believed that this impact contributed to the extinction of almost to the majority of species that were alive on our planet at that time. And that includes all the non-avian dinosaurs. So some species survived this, this uh, impact event. It was like a nuclear winter. You know, the entire world was shrouded in a thick blanket of smoke and soot and dust and whatnot. And this may have gone on for about a decade or so. So there was a period of about a decade possibly in which there was no sunlight on the planet. The planet froze almost. And only some species of animals survived, including the, the avian dinosaurs, who are the ancestors of today's birds. And also some small rat-like mammals survived. These little rat-like mammals survived by scavenging on the dead bodies of dinosaurs and other things. And those rat-like mammals made it through this period and their descendants are talking to you today. We are their descendants. So our ancestors survived that horrific impact event. But the majority of species on the planet died out because it was a devastating, devastating impact. The comet or asteroid that struck the Earth was at least 10 kilometers in diameter. That's enormous. And it struck the planet about 50 or 60 kilometers per second. And the the explosion that resulted out of this was like millions of times greater than the most powerful nuclear bomb ever exploded. It caused an enormous hyper tsunami. The tsunami was two or three kilometers tall. And the speed of the tsunami was greater than the speed of sound. So it was a supersonic hyper tsunami. And the shock wave went across the planet many, many times. The entire planet's crust rung like a bell. And you had volcanic explosions everywhere because of this. And at that time, there was also uh, a super volcano in progress. Somewhere in this region, in the middle of the Indian Ocean, at that time, India was drifting away from, from Africa. And it, was, it had not yet 
it had not yet collided with Asia. So India at that time, the Indian Peninsula was an island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And at that time, you had this super volcano in India called the Deccan Traps. So if you go into central India today, into the Deccan Plateau, whether it is in Maharashtra or, or Telangana, Karnataka, you see this ancient volcanic uh, outcrops and rocks and the western ghats and all that. These are the remnants of the Deccan Traps super volcano explosion or eruption that also happened about 66 million years ago. So that also may have contributed in some way to the extinction of the dinosaurs. So it was maybe simply the impact that did it, or maybe it was also the, the uh, contribution of that super volcano explosion in India that may also have contributed to the extinction of most of the species that were alive at that time. So that is in brief about this question. Anuj Pandey says, your favorite Indian personalities in the past 200 years? That is a very tough question. The one thing India has lacked in the past 1000 years is, is towering leaders. In the past 200 years, I mean, favorite Indian personalities. I, it's, it's very hard for me to think of anybody I, I admire in the past 200 years. The last great Indian I admired was Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj. Who else did, is worthy of admiration? Maybe Subhash Chandra Bose, the great Netaji. Maybe he was. He was certainly somebody who put his life, his reputation, everything on the line for the sake of the country. So yes, he is somebody worth admiring for sure. Subhash Chandra Bose. I apologize if I'm missing out any significant personalities. Uh... <laughs> Not Shri Nehruji, certainly not Mr. Nehru. Who else in the past 200 years? I really can't think of... Nobody comes to mind straight away apart from Subhash Chandra Bose. Unfortunately. So yeah, I'll just stay, keep it at that and maybe in the future I'll think of it, I'll rack my, my mind and my memory to try and think of some great people. What is your opinion? I would like to see your opinion in the comments. Who do you think, who, whom do you admire in India in the past 200 years? Okay, Swami Vivekananda, Abdul Kalam, Lakshmi Bhai, great, 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 good, good. I like it, I like it. So Mr. Abdul Kalam was a, was a, was a very prominent scientist. Yes, one. it is good that you brought up Mr. Abdul Kalam's name here. A great scientist, a great engineer. Mr. Uh, Swami Vivekananda, a great uh, scholar, a great uh, spiritual leader, great. I like to see that. Mr. Savarkar, great, good to see. Mr. Ramanujan, Srinivasa Ramanujan, uh, Subhash Chandra Bose, you're saying. I can see some funny things as well. <laughs> Netaji, Lal Bahadur Shastri, good. Bhagat Singh, Bhagat Singh died very young. Bhagat Singh died so young, right? He was 23 when he died. Today, people say, I was on a, on a debate a couple of days ago. I was on a, I was on a debate, a discussion about whether India's partition was, whether it was, was it inevitable or could have been, could it have been prevented? This was a discussion between me and a gentleman from, from a Pakistani gentleman from Sweden, a Pakistani gentleman from the US, a JNU professor from India and an Indian politician and me. So we had this debate about who, 
whether partition was uh, was inevitable or not and i said that the moment subhash chandra bose was sidelined by the congress party at that time partition became inevitable because many people who fought against subhash chandra bose eventually became pakistanis but had he won then they would have remained indians so i said that subhash chandra bose once he was sidelined india's partition became more or less inevitable and one of the pakistani gentlemen was saying that subhash chandra bose was nobody bhagat singh said that subhash chandra bose was nobody because he nehru was more prominent according to bhagat singh that's what the pakistani gentleman said and my point to him was that bhagat singh was a bachcha when he died he was 23 at the age of 23 you don't have the world figured out you're still exploring things bhagat singh died at the age of 23 if he was alive today you would not even speak to him <laughs> so that's the point you know bhagat singh was a great great patriot he he gave the ultimate sacrifice for the sake of his of his motherland and he was so young so yeah he he was a great patriot certainly somebody worth remembering and somebody worth admiring sarvapalli radhakrishnan good chandrashekhar azad another great martyr another man who gave his life for the country shri aurobindo ghosh interesting choice definitely a great scholar uh i haven't studied him in the amount of detail i would want to study somebody before i come to a conclusion but yes definitely somebody who is greatly admired by people in india shri aurobindo ghosh definitely lots of people admire him maharaja ranjit singh good good nice to nice to see that very good very good lokmanya tilak banda singh bahadur great great a great sikh warrior great warrior nice to see sadashiv bhau peshwa good good who else sardar vallabhbhai patel and so on good good to see all your uh, questions uh, all of your uh, opinions altaf hosen says where did you debate it was on a channel called the argumentative indians it's a small channel Uh, so that's where the debate was held it was like a couple of days ago it was i think in the beginning of this week maybe monday or tuesday i don't remember it's a channel called the argumentative indians okay so yeah so many interesting opinions thank you for your opinions very interesting to see that very nice okay let me take, take let me take some more questions from you uh huh let me see some more questions swaraj says how can we get back pok well in one sentence by following chanakyaneti and being patient that's how we get back pok it won't happen in the next 6 months it won't happen in the next 2 years it can happen in the next 5 to 10 years if we are patient and if we follow the principles of vishnu gupta chanakya properly in a calm measured step by step fashion it can certainly happen in the next 5 to 10 years pawan says pawan asks why didn't indians try conquering africa like the cholas did southeast asia well i don't really have 
an absolute answer for that indians did trade with africa i think we have been trading with africa for 2 3 4 000 years there is of significant and very deep cultural substratum in in africa in eastern africa that is indian in origin look at the cuisine in eastern africa let's take a look at eastern africa so if we go here you have somalia tanzania mozambique madagascar uh this kenya kenya and so on ethiopia if you look at the culture of eastern africa whether it's in somalia kenya tanzania mozambique madagascar northern madagascar etc you will see very significant and very deep indian influences you will see it in the kind of clothing the people there wear it's very similar to the kind of textiles you had in gujarat in the past 500 years the kind of dresses women wear very colorful bright dresses with with these interesting patterns which are almost the same as the kind of textiles you had in gujarat traditionally if you see the cuisine you see the indian spices are very significant uh you you see the use of indian spices in much the same way indians use those spices you see turmeric you see clove you see ginger you see uh other indian spices peppers nutmeg and other spices which are very much used in eastern african cuisine i i think eastern african cuisine tastes very much like indian cuisine and many other things the people of eastern africa especially in somalia ethiopia etc they look very much indian in some way so there if i'm not sure if any genetic studies have been done but there is certainly indian genetics at play in there so i think india conquered eastern africa culturally more than militarily the same way that india conquered china and japan and korea culturally not militarily india has never indulged in colonialism you had the cholas of course who conquered southeast asia but again it was not colonialism it was there was more cultural export than any kind of import into india so that's how india has always been as a civilization as a culture if we do conquer we don't plunder we don't massacre and we don't extract we actually give something more than we take so i think the same thing happened in Austra- in, in in africa for several thousand years at least 4000 years because there is evidence of indian presence in africa that goes back at least 4000 years and the presence is found in the form of indian cattle breeds the zebu cattle which are native to india are found in in, in africa and they have been found there in in africa for at least 4000 years and there are other, other data points as well so i think india has been present in africa especially eastern africa for at least 4000 years indians have been present there but was there a military conquest i don't know we don't have evidence as of today okay let's see some more questions tabla vibes says can you tell us about all the blunders done by shri nehru ji and his family be it taking the issue of kashmir to the un covering up netaji's contribution or the others you know i i think i will make a separate video about this because i may not remember everything right now there is so much to be covered i think there's an interesting book that i can refer to let me give you the book reference uh there is yes let me share this i think this book will 
give you all the details. One second. So this is a good book. So this is a book by Mr. Rajnikant Puranik. It is from 2016. It's called Nehru's 97 Major Blunders. It's a very good book. I have it. It's not here. It's somewhere else. Uh, it's a very good book. It's a very detailed book in which he goes into detail with about 97 major blunders that the towering personality Shri Jawaharlal Nehruji did as the Prime Minister of India. It's only about him. It's not about his descendants. It's only about Mr. Nehru himself and his role in shaping the India of today. And as you can see, it's a very well-rated book. 4.5 out of 5 is excellent. So I would recommend this book highly. It's a very good, it's a very well-researched book about this topic. So I will say only that for now. If you can buy this book, buy it, and you will get lots of details about this topic. Okay, some more questions. Harsh says, what was so special about Africa that all the human species originated there and not in any other part of the world? We don't know. Evolution is often spontaneous. It's often random. It's often a matter of chance or luck that certain species emerge from certain regions. And thus far, the true origins of humanity are still murky. The best evidence that we have indicates that humanity originated in Africa. But we are also finding more and more evidence of a significant amount of very ancient, archaic human presence in Asia and also in parts of Europe, Eurasia. Now, some of these ancient fossils have been, have been interpreted as primate fossils, that is, fossils of apes or monkey, monkeys. But what is the dividing line between an ancient monkey and an ancient hominid? It's often a matter of interpretation. And then there are these very strange, very strange data points, like there is evidence of human-like footprints that are several million years old in Eurasia, I think. I don't remember exactly where it was. I think it's somewhere in Europe, I think. And that predates the earliest evidence of humans in Africa. So as of today, I think we should hold our judgment. More data is emerging. More discoveries are coming out. The story of humanity is yet to be fully told. We don't know for sure that humanity originated in Africa. The best evidence thus far, the best unambiguous evidence thus far, indicates that humanity most likely emerged in Africa. And yet, if we find more evidence, the story will change. That is how it works in science. Nothing is set in stone. You can't say, I believe this in the end of story. When new evidence comes in, the story changes because you have new data. And it may refute your old beliefs or what you had assumed to be true before that. So I think the story of humanity, humanity is very complex. It's not a linear story. There have been several branches of the human family tree. We are the surviving branch, but even our origin story is not linear. We have contributions, genetic contributions from Neanderthals, from Denisovans, and maybe other ancient hominid species that we don't even know of as of today. So it's a very complex origin story, and it's not yet uh, completely known. 
so maybe we emerge somewhere else also that is also a possibility that has to be taken seriously okay some more questions Shandilya Manmik Sharma says, can you advise authentic book on the life of Shri Chinggis Khan? I think there's a number of books. My research has been done outside of books. I have read lots of journal articles and accounts of various historians outside of books, not books. But if you want a good book, I think there's a book by Jack Weatherford. Okay, let me let me go to Amazon and let's let's Google it and let me recommend a couple of books. Khan. So, yes, this book is good. Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World by Jack Weatherford. I haven't read it myself, but it is very well rated. So I am assuming it must be good. I haven't read this book myself. There is this book by John Mann also, which seems to be good. I haven't read this book either. But yeah, I would say that I would, re- I would, I would recommend these two books. One is the book by Jack Weatherford and... Then the book by John Mann, purely on the basis of the good reviews it has got. I haven't read these books myself. My research has been done in a completely different way. I have been researching Genghis Khan since the late 1990s. Through lots of various journal articles, National Geographic articles, and God knows what else. All kinds of clippings and all that. So it's a lot of data points that I have accumulated in my throughout the course of my research that come from a lot of different sources. So that's how I learned about Genghis Khan. And that's why my interpretation and my understanding of Genghis Khan is so different from that of your mainstream historians. But if you want to, if you want a couple of books to understand this man, this great man, then I would re- I would recommend those two books. Okay, let's take some more questions. Sumanta says, you said in Ranveer Alavadiya show that India's independence in 1947 was an abstract. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Are we living on a parallel earth and what's your belief on this? Uh, I think these are two different questions. I don't remember exactly what I said in Ranveer's show. I think I said that, I have said that on this channel as well. I didn't say it was abstract. I said that India's independence in 1947 was an illusion. What happened in 1947 was to put it crudely, it was a transfer of power from one set of crooks to another set of crooks. There was nothing democratic about it. Power was given to India. India was given freedom on the terms of the British. We did not get freedom on our own terms. They gave it to us on their terms. And that's why their system continues even today. The laws the British wrote are still in force in India today. The institutions the British created are still ruling over us today. Power was handed to the Congress party. It was not a democratic transfer of power. They decided, they chose the Congress party to give power to. And they chose to partition the country. And they handpicked Jawaharlal Nehru as the Prime Minister of India. He was selected as the Prime Minister. He was not elected in an election. The first election was in the 1950s, I think. So it was a transfer of power. 
and india became a dominion or something of the of the uk i don't even know what is the real status today so it was india is still deeply 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 colonized in all ways we are even more colonized today than we were in 1947 so that's why i say that india's independence in 1947 was an illusion it was a sham we are still not independent we are still completely colonized all our institutions are colonial our parliamentary system is colonial we have prime ministers who are chosen by mps we don't get to elect a prime minister we can only elect an mp and all these mps get together to choose a prime minister or a chief minister and you see what happens as a result of that today we have a good prime minister one of the strongest prime ministers we have had since 1947 but see the other prime minister we have prime ministers we have had before that and see the kind of horse trading that happens in elections or after elections and what kind of chief ministers come up in certain parts of the country in certain periods of time so our democracy is an illusory democracy we don't really have the power to choose to select our own leaders they are selected only indirectly and so many things more we are completely colonized even today so that's what i meant by saying that our independence was an illusion now the other question is are we living on a parallel earth i i don't know <laughs> i haven't seen two earths so i only know one earth so that's all i know that's the best date from the best observational evidence that we have only one earth exists only one solar system exists only one universe exists if there are parallel universes or parallel earths well it's some, something we can only speculate about we haven't actually observed it science is about observational evidence and physical phenomena so from the physical phenomena that we observe and from the observational evidence that we have there is only one earth that we can see so that's all i can tell you that's all i can report to you from the observations i have made okay some more questions okay lots of hands okay why doesn't india try to expand its borders like china or any other country please take my question hi 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 okay well india has never been an expansionist nation or culture or civilization even during the most apart from the cholas we have never truly been expansionist i think even the kushans kanishka etc they did expand india's sphere of influence in india's territories all the way up to the caspian and aral seas and all the way up into xinjiang etc but apart from these two three episodes or chapters of india's history we have not really been an expansionist people there have been migrations out of india that conquered all of europe etc that's a different story but overall our culture is a very peaceful accommodative culture and expansion also is predicated upon military strength and it's also predicated on political continuity and unity in the country today's political system in india is very fragmented this so called federal system of india it weakens india it pulls india in, in 50 different directions every state acts like a separate country they have their own rules they have their own way of dealing with things they are often working against the central government especially if it's a different political party and there are elections every year in some part of the country and even at the central level 
if the election throws up a new party, then the policies change overnight. And what was happening may be completely reversed. For example, when you had Morarji Desai come in, he destroyed India's intelligence network in Pakistan. And the same thing was done by IPK, IK, IK Gujral. So this sort of system is extraordinarily unstable. It is extraordinarily detrimental to India's national interest. So our political system is designed to keep India unstable and weak. So that is one reason why India is weak. And secondly, India has simply not managed to bring its economy up. It's, it's, it's growing, of course, but it's not growing fast enough. We want double-digit growth every year for the next 20 years. Only then can India quickly become a middle-income country. But that will take a lot of doing. As of today, India is, is again, after the pandemic, it's picking up growth slowly. It's a good sign. I'm very happy to see that. But it needs to go much further. And again, with economic growth, we need proportional military growth as well. We need to invest in the military. Because what's the point of having a strong economy and having a rich country if you can't defend it? So if these things are put in place, then we can expand our borders and reclaim the lands we have lost. Those are justifiable territorial aspirations. We have lost lands that have been ours for 10,000 years or more. It is justifiable to seek those lands back. Of course, powers like China will not want that to happen. But it's curious that they want Akhand China, but they are against Akhand Bharat. So India needs to strengthen itself and then deal with China properly, man to man. We will support your Akhand China project if you will support our Akhand Bharat project or something like that. So that's why India, as of today, is not trying to expand its borders because it's not strong enough. It's not strong enough politically. There's no political continuity. There's a lot of forces pulling India in different directions. There are so many outside forces at, at work in India, undermining India's culture and undermining India's politics and so on. So these are the factors that keep India weak and unstable. And unless India becomes strong and stable, it will never be able to achieve any objective of reclaiming lost territories. So that's that's why it is so. Okay, let's take a couple of more questions. Mr. Tomcat says, why did Pakistan help Taliban in conquering Panjshir? Will India lose Kashmir if Taliban plus Pakistan plus China covert attack India? The recent news is that there is a rift between Taliban leaders. Please share your views. Well, the Pakistanis want to maintain some sort of leverage over the Taliban. What's happened in the past month is that the Taliban have been able to run over the country and capture the entire country and take it under, under their control without any Pakistani help. The Americans gave the country to them on a platter. So that's why only the, the Panjashir Valley region was left out where you had this uh, alliance of, uh, what's his name, Ahmad Masood and Amrullah Saleh who were holding out. So to in order to re restore some, sort, some form of leverage over the, over the Taliban, the Pakistanis sent in their ISI chief and they did some aerial activity with helicopters, I think, to try and dislodge, dislodge the 
the resistance from the Panjshir Valley. So Pakistan wants to ensure that it has some continued leverage over the Taliban leadership. That's why they are trying to stay involved in some way or the other. Now your other question is, will India lose Kashmir if Taliban plus Pakistan plus China get involved and attack India? Look, the Taliban is not a significant force. They have been terrorists for the past 20 years. They are not a proper military force. They are a ragtag bunch of terrorists. The only reason they have Afghanistan today is because the Americans gave Afghanistan to them. They don't have a strong military. They are no match for the Indian armed forces. If India desires, India can take over Afghanistan in a month's time. If India so desires. Of course, then you will have the involvement of China and Pakistan and whatnot. It will become a mess. Many multiple actors will get involved. But the Indian armed forces are way, way, way more powerful than anything the Taliban has or anything even the Pakistanis have. The only powerful force that India has to contend with is China. I don't think the Chinese will, as of today, want any mess in Kashmir because that is going to spill over into China as well. Because once India knows the Chinese have been doing this, there will be repercussions for the Chinese as well. So I don't think any, I don't foresee any problems in Kashmir in the foreseeable future. I don't think the Taliban have any appetite for getting involved anywhere right now. In the next few years, they want to consolidate their hold over the country. And that's what they're going to be working towards. They will try and balance Pakistan and China and Iran and maybe the US also against each other, play one against the other. And that's how they will try and continue ruling over Afghanistan. As of today, the Americans want the Taliban to rule Afghanistan. Maybe they want the Chinese to get involved right now, and the Pakistanis to get involved right now. And maybe four or five years down the line, it will come back to bite the Chinese and the Pakistanis. Maybe that's the plan. See, the geopolitical game is a long-term game. Right now, you're seeing all kinds of things happening in Afghanistan. Just calm down and watch it. Let it happen. The real game is over the next 5 or 10 years. Right now, the Pakistanis are getting involved in this and that. It's okay. Let it happen. It doesn't make it, it doesn't really matter in the long term. In the long term, what matters is what is the long-term fate of the Taliban leadership and of the Chinese involvement and of Pakistan. That is the real big game. Okay, more questions. This is an interesting question by Sirohi. My opinion about mega cities like Dubai being built by modern day slaves from India. So, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, Dubai was a fishing village. There was nothing there. Then somehow, then somehow Dubai became rich. I think Dubai doesn't have much oil unlike the other Gulf states. But somehow money began flowing into Dubai some of it was, was from India through certain through certain channels, I would say. And then that money was used to start building this city. And it was Indian labor that built these big cities like Dubai, Abu Dhabi, etc. People from the from the from Kerala, etc., would go to work in the Gulf and they would send the money back to India. So they would be treated like slaves almost. 
like very cheap disposable labor in the entire cities like dubai abu dhabi etc were built with this cheap disposable indian labor there were pakistanis also there bangladeshis also etc nepalese afghans to some extent and people from the philippines so these are the disposable labor in the gulf region today i think there are fewer indians working in the gulf and today india has a very strong political and geopolitical relationship with the gulf nations like dubai abu dhabi qatar uae and all that so today the perception about india seems to have changed to some extent in the gulf and today i think there would be fewer indians working as de facto slaves there but i am sure there are still many indians who work there i think it's 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 terrible it's a consequence of india's very very paltry per capita gdp which means that most people live in poverty that's why they have to go far away to work as slaves in order to send the money back to the families that i will suffer but my family will have a better life that sort of sentiment it's all because of this of the policies of the nehruvian regime and the subsequent regimes which kept india poor these were povertarian policies mr mohandas gandhi had a povertarian vision for india he wanted indians to to weave khadi every day and earn just barely enough to stay alive that was mr gandhi's vision for india and that's what mr nehru implemented today india is a very different country india is industrializing i hope it industrializes more india needs to move away from services and more into manufacturing because that is what truly industrializes a country otherwise we run the risk of becoming cyber coolies just like indian slave labor built up dubai and abu dhabi and these beautiful cities in the middle east today indian slave labor or cheap labor will build up these virtual monopolies google facebook and what not it's the same pattern happening again so india needs to move away from offering its services and its intellectual labor for cheap and india needs to start investing in its own uh in its own infrastructure that's what needs to happen so that is the lesson we can learn from the fact that dubai and abu dhabi and these cities were built so cheaply with indian labor it happened it's it's terrible it happened but there is a lesson to be learned from that and that lesson is valid even today in the digital age okay i will take one more question why have you used a relief map in your thumbnail well i felt like using a relief map is it bad <laughs> do you have an objection to that <laughs> i think it's a good map don't you think so okay one more question a real question uh ayush ayush says asks the reason behind the decline of the indus valley civilization it was not a separate civilization it was one of the phases of india's 10000 plus year old civilization the decline happened over 2000 years because of climate change the indian monsoon used to be very intense it fed this enormous river called the saraswati which declined over many thousand years eventually there was not enough water in the river it dried out the other rivers continued but they also declined and therefore the lifestyle that was there in that river valley region in the saptasindhu region 
was no longer sustainable because many rivers dried out and the entire climate overall was much drier became much drier and therefore the people of this region over the centuries over 2000 years they moved to other parts of india where they still they were their descendants still live today so it was not the decline it was just the moving away from that region to other parts of india or maybe even other places of the world because during the indus valley time during the harappan phase of india civilization we find indian genetics in australia we find indian genetics going throughout europe and so on so it's a very complex scenario but the if you want in one sentence the decline why did this this uh, region decline it's because of climate change because of the monsoon declining significantly over a number of thousand of years that's what happened okay okay let's see shall i take one more question shandilya manmik sharma okay okay this is going to be the last question for today do you think india gets any benefit in exchange for helping bangladesh in their freedom struggle i see india just got an influx of bangladeshis i think it was a it was a great potential opportunity for india i mean from 1947 to 1971 that's how many years 24 years so that part of bengal had been a separate country for only 24 years india should have either reintegrated east bengal or bangladesh into india because we conquered it militarily fair and square or india should have ensured that a pro india government was installed there and india should have ensured the continuity of such a pro india government in bangladesh india did neither of these things india allowed bangladesh to just run amok and go into its own direction and and there were, there have been times when bangladeshi governments have been very strongly anti india today if you look at the common bangladeshi person they are very much anti india they are very much pro pakistan their textbooks teach them that they won independence on their own through their so called mukti bahini movement which is absolute nonsense the mukti bahini was a rag tag guerrilla outfit they could do nothing to prevent the wholesale massacre of more than 5 million bangladeshis at the hand of the punjabi army what did the mukti bahini do it could do nothing it was trained by india and when india discovered that the mukti bahini is no match for the pakistanis that's when india had to intervene militarily it was india that freed bangladesh from the pakistanis but today the bangladeshis are, are taught that they won independence on their own india just came to take photographs that sort of nonsense and after independence bangladesh was allowed to go its own way it became an independent country i don't know why because today you have millions of bangladeshis in india all across india from north south east west everywhere these illegal bangladeshi immigrants assam's entire demographics have changed the great sacrifices of the ohom dynasty of lalitaditya or not of uh, of lachit borpukhan who prevented the mogulization and the turkification of assam all of that has been undone by the policies of the nehruvian and subsequent regimes right the border with bangladesh is almost open it seems they can just walk in any time they want so i think india got no benefit 
from 1971, if you look at the long-term perspective, what did India gain from that? Yeah, the only benefit was that Pakistan was was broken into. That's the only benefit. But apart from that, there's no other benefit. And today here, Bangladesh is millions of them, millions of them all across India, illegal immigrants who have valid papers, Aadhaar cards and PAN cards and whatnot. It's a horrific situation. It's never going to be reversed. They have the documentation that uh, that proves that they are Indian citizens. So what's India going to be do, able to do about them? Absolutely nothing. The only long-term solution is to reabsorb Bangladesh and then to deal with it in a in a manner that is that is best for India's national interest. What that what prop what is to be done to deal with them that remains to be seen. But that is for the leadership to determine. So that is in brief about this question. I think I will stop here now. Thank you so much for all your questions. It's great to see you all. Next week, I'm going to do two sessions and there will be some changes next week in the kind of session that I do. So I will let you know in a couple of days. Until then, thank you so much for your viewership. Thank you for all your participation. And I will see you next week very soon. Take care. Have a good day and have a good night. Bye-bye.